Part three, chapter two of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. At the precincts, the increasing habit of seeing the other side of things was confined in its increasing exemplifications of how impossible he was to get on with to the furiously exciting incidents of public affairs but the result was the same the result was that just as on opening his door on return home at night he had that chill and rather eerie feeling of stepping into an empty house so on entering the office the next morning he came to have again that sensation that it was a deserted habitation into which he was stepping no welcome here no welcome there he began to look forward with new desire for the escape and detachment of the bicycle ride. He began to approach its termination at either end with a sense of apprehension, gradually of dismay. They were as unexpected as the conflicts of opinions in the office as they were at home. The subject would come up, he would enter it according to his ideas and without foreseeing trouble, and suddenly he would find himself in acute opposition and giving acute offence because he was in acute opposition. The Suffragettes The day when Mr. Fortune received through the post letters upon which militancy had squirted its oppression and its determination in black and viscid form through the aperture of the letter-box. And you're sticking up for them, declared Mr. Fortune in a very great passion. You're deliberately sticking up for them. You! Pa! Poof! Paf! I've got the abominable stuff all over my fingers. Sabre displayed the wrinkled-up nut of his puzzle-head boyhood. I'm not sticking up for them. I detest their methods as much as you do. I think they're monstrous and indefensible. All I said was that, things being as they are, you can't help seeing that their horrible ways are bringing the vote a jolly sight nearer than it's ever been before. Millions of people who never would have thought about women's suffrage are now thinking about it. These women are advertising it as never could be advertised by calmly talking about it. And you can't get anything nowadays except by shouting and smashing and abusing and advertising. I only wish you could. No one listens to reason. It's got to be what they call a whirlwind campaign or go without. That's not sticking up for them. It's simply recognizing the rotten state of affairs. And I say to you, returned Mr. Fortune, scrubbing furiously at his fingers with a duster, and I say to you, what I seem to be perpetually forced to say to you, that your ideas are coming more and more repugnant to me. There's not a solitary subject comes up between us, but you adopt in it what I desire to call a stubborn and contumacious attitude towards me. Woof! He blew a cyclonic blast down the speaking tube. Send Parker up here. Parker! Send Parker up here. Parker! 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 Pa! Poof! Paff! Now that it's all over the speaking tube. I am by no means recovered yet, Sabre. I'm very far from being yet recovered from your remarks yesterday on the Welch Church Disestablishment Bill. Let me remind you again that your attitude was not only very painful to me in my capacity of one in holy orders, it was also outrageously opposed to the traditions and standing of this firm. We are out of sympathy, Sabre. We're seriously out of sympathy. And let me tell you that you would do well to reflect whether we are not dangerously out of sympathy. Let me— the door-porter entered the venerable presence of the summoned Parker, much agitated. Sabre began. If you can't see what I said about the disestablishment bill, 
I do not see. I do not see. I cannot see, and I shall not see. Sabre moved towards his door. Well, I'd better be attending to my work. If anything I've said annoyed you, it certainly was not intended to. And there followed him into his room. Pumice stone, pumice stone, pumice stone. Go to the chemist's and get some pumice stone. Very well, then, sir. Don't stand there staring at me, sir. Like living in two empty houses, empty this end, empty that end, more frequently for these estrangements, appealed to him the places of his refuge, the room of his mind, that private changer wherein retired, he assembled the parts of his puzzle, that familiar garment in which invested, he sat among the fraternity of his thoughts, the evenings with young Perch and old Mrs. Perch, the evenings with Mr. Fargus. Most strongly of all called another refuge, and this, because it called so strongly, he kept locked. Nona. They met no more frequently than prior to her two years' absence. They had been wont to meet in the ordinary course of neighborly life, and their lives, by their situations, were much detached. Northrep's was only visited, never resided at for many months together. His resolution was not to force encounters. Once, very shortly after that day of her disclosure, he had said to her, "'Look here, we're not going to have any arranged meetings, Nona. I'm not strong enough.' not strong enough to resist. I couldn't bear it. She answered, You're too strong, Marco. You're too strong to do what you think you ought not to do. It isn't not being strong enough. He told her she was very strong. That's given me strength of character. I haven't any strength of character at all. That's been my failing all my life. I'll tell you what I got instead. I've got the most frightfully, most infernally vivid sense of what's right in my own personal conduct. Lots of people haven't. I envy them. They can do what they like. But I know what I ought to do. I know it so absolutely that there's no excuse for me when I don't do it. Certainly no credit if I do. I go in with my eyes open, or I stay out merely because my eyes are open. There's nothing in that. If it's anything, it's contemptible. She said, Teach me to be contemptible. In those words he had expressed his composition. What he had not revealed, that very vividness of sense of what was right and what was wrong, in his conduct forbidding it. It was corroding struggle to preserve the path of his duty. Because of that struggle he kept locked the refuge that Nona was to him in his dismays. He would have no meetings with her save only such as thrice happy chance and most kind circumstance might apportion. That was within the capacity of his strength. He could at least prevent his limbs from taking him to her. But his mind, his mind turned to her, automatically, when he was off guard, as a swing door ever to its frame. Frantically, when he would abate it, as a prisoned animal against its bars. By day, by night, in Fortune's company, in Mabel's company, in solitude, his mind turned to her. This was the refuge he kept locked, using the expression, and envisaging it. He used to think, of course I fail. Of course she's always in my mind. But while I make the effort to prevent it, while I do sometimes manage to wrench my mind away, I'm keeping fit. I'm able to go on putting up some sort of fight. I'm able to help her. To help her. But helping her, unfolding before her own measured words, as one pronouncing sentence, rectitudes a stare asylum for their pains, watching her while she listened, hearing her gentle acquiescence. These were most terrible to his governance upon himself. 
He said one day, You see, there's this, Nona. Life's got one. We're in the thing. All the time you've got to go on. You can't go back a single second. What you've done, you've done. It may only take a minute in the doing, or in the saying, but it's done, or said, for all your life, perhaps for the whole of someone else's life as well. That's terrific, Nona. Nona, that's how life gets us. There's just one way we can get life, and that's by thinking forward before we do a thing. By remembering that it's going to be there always. What's in our hearts for one another, Nona, is no hurt to tomorrow, nor to next year or to twenty years hence, either to our own lives or to anyone else's. No hurt while it's only there and not expressed or acted on. I've never told you what's in my heart for you, nor you told me what's in your heart for me. It must remain like that. Once that goes, everything goes. It's only a question of time after that. And after that, again, only a question of time before one of us looks back and wishes for the years over again. She made the smallest motion of dissent. He said, Yes, there's right and wrong, Nona. Nothing else in between. No compromise. No way of getting around them or over them. You must be either one thing or the other. Once we took a step towards wrong, there it is forever. And it's all horrible things in it. Deceit, concealment, falsehood, subterfuge, pertinence, vile and beastly things like that. I couldn't endure them. And I much less couldn't endure thinking I had caused you to suffer them. And then on through that mire to dishonor. It's easy, it sounds rather fine, to say the word, well lost for love, but honor. Honor's not well lost for anything. You can't replace it. I couldn't the austere asylum of their pains. He looked back upon it as he had unfolded it. He looked forward across it as, most stern and bleak, it awaited them. He cried with a sudden loudness, as though he protested, not before her, but before arbitrament, but before arbitrament in the high court of destiny. But I cannot help you upward. I can only lead you downward. She said, Upward, Marco. You help me upward. Her gentle acquiescence. There swept upon him, as one reckless in sudden urge of intoxication, most passionate desire to take her in his arms, and to crush the fragments of barriers of conduct he had in damnable sophistries erected, and in her ears to breathe. You are beloved to me, honor, honesty, virtue, rectitude. Words, darling, words, words, words. Beloved, let the foundations of the world go spinning, so we have love. He called most terribly upon himself, and his self answered him, but shaken by that most fierce onset, he said thickly, I'll have this. If it ever grows too hard for you, tell me, tell me. It must be kept locked, in grievous doubt of his own strength, in loneliness more lonely for his doubt, more deeply as advancing summer lengthened out his waking solitude. He explored among his inmost thoughts, more eagerly, in relief from their perplexities, turned to the companionship of Fargus and the Perches. How very, very glad they always were to see him! It was the strong happiness they manifested in greeting him that most deeply gave the pleasure he had in their company. He often pondered the fact it was in their manifestation of it as though he had brought them something, something very pleasurable to them that they much wanted. Certainly, certainly he, for his own part, received such from them a sense of warmth, a kindling of the spirit, a glowing of all his affections and perceptions. His mind would explore curiously along this train of thought. 
he came to determine that infinitely the most beautiful thing in life was a face lighting up with the pleasure of friendship in its apotheosis irradiating with the wonder of love that frequent idea of his of the wanting something look in the faces of half the people one saw he thought that the greeting of someone loved might well be a touching of the quality that was to seek the weariest and the most wistful faces were sheerly transfigured by it but he felt that it was not entirely the secret the greeting passed the light faded the wanting returned but he determined the key to the solution lay within that ambit the happiness was there it was here in life found realized in loving meeting as warmth is found on stepping from shadow into the sun the thing lacking was something that would fix it render it permanent establish it in the being as the heart is rooted in the body something what he thought well why is it that children's faces are always happy there's something they must lose as they grow out of childhood it's not that cares and troubles come the absurd troubles of childhood are just as terrific troubles to them as grown-ups cares are to grown-ups no it is that something is lost well what i had as a child that i have not as a man would it be hope would it be faith would it be belief he thought i wonder if they're all the same those three belief faith hope belief in hope faith in hope it may be is it that a child knows no limitation to hope can it hope impossible things but a man hopes no further than he can see i wonder and suddenly in one week life from its armory discharged two events upon him in the next week one upon the world towards the end of july there was some particularly splendid excitement for the newspaper reading public ireland provided it and the newspapers as the events enlarged one upon the other could scarcely find type big enough to keep pace with them on the twenty first the king caused a conference of british and irish leaders to assemble at buckingham palace on the twenty fourth the british and irish leaders departed from buckingham palace in patriotic halos of national champions who had failed to agree in principle or detail deadlock and crisis flew about the streets in stupendous type and though they had been doing so almost daily for the past eighteen months everybody could see with the most delicious thrills that these were the more firmly locked deadlocks and more critical crisis than had ever before come whipping out of the inexhaustible store where they were kept for the public entertainment austria and then germany made not a bad attempt on public attention by raking up some forgotten sensation over a stale excitement at a place called sarajevo but on the twenty-sixth ireland magnificently filled the bill again by far more serious affair of nationalist volunteers landing three thousand rifles and marching them into dublin troops fired on the mob and the house of commons gave itself over to a most exciting debate on the business the irish party demanded a large number of brutal heads to be delivered on chargers and unionist politicians press and public declared that the heads were not brutal heads but loyal and devoted heads that should not be delivered on the contrary they should be wreathed it was delicious it was delicious and it was moreover reassuring in these days between the summoning of the buckingham palace conference and the landing of the nationalist guns continental events arising out of the stale sarajevo affair reared their heads and looked towards great britain in a presumptuous and sinister way to which the british public was not accustomed and which it resented 
the british public had never taken any interest in international affairs and it did not wish to take any interest in international affairs it certainly did not wish to be disturbed by them and at this moment of the exciting irish deadlock the wilhelmstrasse the ball plots the quai d'orsay and similar stupid meaningless and unpronounceable places intruded themselves disturbingly in british homes much as the writing on the wall vexatiously disturbed belshazzar's feast and were similarly resented belshazzar probably ordered in a fresh troop of dancers to remove the chilly effect of the stupid meaningless and unpronounceable writing and in the same way the british public turned with relief and with trills to the gun-running and the shooting it was characteristically intriguing in the nature of its excitement it was characteristically intriguing because like all the domestic sensations to which british public had become accustomed it in no way interfered with the lives of those directly not implicated in it like them all it entertained without inconveniencing they knew their place the deadlocks the crisis and other sensations of those glowing days they caused no member of their audience to go without his meals they interfered with neither pleasure nor with business sometimes this was a little surprising fresh from newspaper instruction of the deadness of the deadlock the poignancy of the crisis or the stupidity of the achievement one rather expected one's own personal world to stand still and watch it but one's own personal world never did stand still and watch it sabre coming into his office on the day reporting the affray in dublin was made to experience this in the town on his arrival he purchased several of the london newspapers and read other accounts and other views of the gun-running and its sensational sequel his intention was to read them in the moment he got to his room he put them on a chair while he hung up his straw hat and filled a pipe they remained there unopened until the charwoman removed them in the evening on his desk as he glanced towards it was a letter from nona he turned it over in his hands the small neat script she never before had written to him at the office it bore the london postmark she would be writing from their townhouse it would be to say she was coming back but she never wrote on the occasion of her return they just met and she never had before written to the office Mr. Fortune came into the room. With him was a young man, a youth, whose face was vaguely familiar to Sabre, twining behind. "'Ah, Sabre,' said Mr. Fortune. "'Good morning, Sabre. This is rather a large number of visitors than you would commonly expect, but we are a larger staff this morning than we have heretofore been. I am bringing in to you a new member of our staff,' he indicated the young man beside him. "'A new member, but bearing an old name. A chip off the old block.' the old twining block he smiled stroking his whale-like front rather as though his pleasantry had proceeded from its depth and he was congratulating it the young man smiled twining edging forward from the background also smiled all the smiles were rather nervous this was natural in the new member of the staff but in twining and mr fortune gave sabre the feeling that for some reason they were not entirely at ease his immediate thought had been that it was an odd thing to have taken on a young twining without mentioning it even casually to him it was significant of his estrangement in the office but their self-conscious manner was even more significant it suggested that he had been kept out of the plan deliberately he gave the young man his hand why that's very nice he said i thought i knew your face i think i've seen you with your father you've been in the blade and parsons place haven't you young twining replied that he had 
He had his father's rather quick and stiff manner of speaking. He was fair-haired and complexioned, good-looking in a sharp-featured way, a juvenile edition of his father in a different colouring. Mr. Fortune was still stroking the whale-white front, produced further pleasantry from it. Yes, with Blade and Parson. Twining here has snatched him from the long arm of the law before he's had time to develop the long jaw of the legal shark. In point of fact, Sabre, Mr. Fortune ceased to stroke the whale-like front. He moved a step or two out of line of Sabre's regard, and standing before the bookshelves, addressed his remarks to them as though what else he had to say were not of particular consequence. In point of fact, Sabre, this is very natural and pleasing desire of Twining to have his son in the office, a desire which I am most gratified to support. In his first, what shall I say, feeling of his feet, establishing of his position, in his new, er, his new responsibility, duty, er, uh, function, I like this deeper tone in the six terms binding, Sabre. I distinctly approve it. Yes, what was I saying? Ah, yes. Twining is now in partnership, Sabre. Yes, good. He came abruptly away from the shelves and directed the whale-like front towards his door in process of departure. A little reorganization, nothing more, just a little reorganization. I think you'll find we shall all work very much more comfortably for it. He paused before young Twining. Well, young man, now you've made your bow before our literary adviser. I think we all decided to call him Harold, eh, Twining? Avoid confusion, don't you agree, Sabre? If that's his name, Sabre said. He had remained standing looking towards father and son precisely as he stood looking at the party's entry. Mr. Fortune glanced at him and compressed his lips. It is, he said shortly. He left the room. Twining spoke his first word since his entry. Well, there we are, old man. He smiled and breathed strongly through his nose, as if tensing himself against some emergency that might arise. Sabre said, Yes, well done, Twining. Of course he promised you this long ago. Yes, didn't he? Glad you remembered my telling you. Of course it won't make the least difference to you, old man. What I mean is, if anything I hope I shall be able to give you a leg up in all sorts of ways. I've been telling Harold what a frightfully smart man you are, haven't I, Harold? Harold smiled assent to this tribute, and Sabre said, I suppose we shall go on as much before? Oh, rather, old man. Harold be working in your room, eh? Yes, that's the idea, for a start anyway. They're just shoving up a desk for him. Come along in and see how we're fixing it, old man. I'll look in presently. Right, old man. Come along, Harold. At the door he turned and said, Oh, by the way, I want you to show Harold through the work of this side of the business a bit later on. Sabre looked quickly at him. You want me to? Twining flushed darkly. Well, he may as well get the hang of the whole business, mayn't he? That's what I mean. Oh, certainly he should. I quite agree. Send him along any time you like. Thanks awfully, old man. But outside the door, Twining added to himself, You thought that that was an order, my lord, and you didn't like it. Pretty soon you won't think. You'll know. Sabre remained standing at his desk. He had a tiny ball of paper in his hand, and he rolled it round between his finger and thumb, round and round and round. In his mind was a recollection. You have struck your tents and are upon the march. He thought, This has been coming a long time. It's my way of looking at things that has done this. I'm getting so I've got nowhere to turn. It's no good pretending I don't feel this. I feel it most frightfully. I've let down the books. They'll take a back place in the business now. Twining's always been jealous of them. Fortune never really liked my success with them. They'll begin interfering with the books now. 
My books. It was rottenly done. Behind my back. Plotted against me. Or they wouldn't have sprung it on me like that. That shows what it's going to be like. It's all through my way of looking at things. I've no one here I can take things to. This frightful feeling of being alone in the place. And it's going to be worse. And nowhere to get out of it. More empty at home. And now there's this. And I've got to go back to that. You've struck your tents and are up on the march. Yes. Yes. He suddenly recollected Nona's letter. He took it from his pocket and opened it, and the second event was discharged upon him. She wrote from her own townhouse. Marco, take me away. Nona. His emotions leapt to her with most terrible violence. His heart leapt against his breast as though engine of his tumult. It would burst her bonds and to her. He struck his hand upon the desk. He said loud, Yes, yes. He remembered his words. If you ever feel you can't bear it, tell me. Tell me. He began to write plans to her. He would come to London tomorrow. She should come to the station if she could. If not, he would be at the Great Western Hotel. She would telephone him there, and they could arrange to meet and discuss what they should do. He would like to go away with her directly they met. There were certain things to see to. He wrote, But I can only take you. His pen stopped. Familiar words. He repeated them to himself, and their conclusion that their circumstance appeared and stood, as with a sword, across the passage of his thoughts. But I can only lead you downwards. I cannot lead you upwards, as with a sword. He sat back in his chair and gazed upon the armed intruder to give it battle. End of chapter 2 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com.